Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family... Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to the Inside the Oval podcast presented by Dignity Health. I'm Haley Jones. And I'm Patty Kwan. And today we are joined by Chief Marketing Officer Alex Chang. Alex, thank you for being on the podcast, finally. Thank you for having me. I've been uh, waiting for this for a long time. What does it mean, and I'm sure it's a lot of things, but what does it mean to be a 49ers chief marketing officer? Um, it means I have probably one of the most uh, incredible jobs, honestly, like in our industry. Um, it means I get to work with an amazing group of individuals, including you guys, um, every day, and we collectively get to be the stewards of this amazing brand um, that so many people uh, really value um, and love and consider an integral part of their life. You went to Emory University studying biology. You got your master's in public health, health policy and management. And you've mentioned it to us before that you were on track doing pre-med. You thought you wanted to be a doctor. At what point did you realize that wasn't what you wanted to do anymore because that's a lot of curriculum right yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the one slight correction is um, my parents thought I should be a doctor, right? I was just following a path that had been kind of predetermined for me. So like a lot of uh, Asian American families, um, my dad came over from Taiwan. He's a doctor. And the expectation is you're going to be a doctor too. And there's not really not much discussion about it. It was really funny. I actually had this conversation with my daughter yesterday. She's eight years old. That's whole conversation with her on the ride home soccer yesterday. And she asked me the same question you just asked me is, hey, like, when did you know you didn't want to do that? And when I told her it was when I was already in college and already two to three years into being pre-med, she asked me this really great question. It was like, why didn't you say something sooner? Right. Um, and I think it goes back to wanting to, you know, kind of please your parents and kind of wanted to do what's expected of you. And also, honestly, part of it is on yourself because not knowing what you want to do either because you really hadn't figured out that point. A lot of people haven't figured it out then. I think for me, I think when I was, you know, junior, senior year, I really said, okay, like this is not the path I want to go down. I'm not excited by it. It doesn't feel like a future that I really want. 
there are even some really tactical things that sound silly. It grossed me out. Like everything we did in biology, like all the dissections and stuff, they grossed me out. I, I couldn't do them. I would literally sit there and just be like, okay, my partner has to do all of the dirty work. I'm just going to sit here and take some notes. Like it grossed me out. So it, it just wasn't for me. So I, I realized that in college towards the end, had the hard conversation with the parents said, look, this isn't for me. But the easiest pivot that I found was to go to health policy management, which is really the business side of healthcare. Um, so that's what I did. I made that pivot kind of towards the end of undergrad and went straight into grad school. So I graduated like in April and then in May started in grad school to get my master's and to finish that um, in the following December. It's like in a year and a half. But it's one of those things where like, yeah, I honestly, I just kind of went along with the plan for probably longer than I needed to. Um, but I'm glad I realized at least partially like this wasn't the right path for me then. Um, but it was really many years later when I realized what my real path was, which was being a sports market. And that took another 10 years of kind of being out in the workforce and trying different things before I figured that out. So, you know, to me, the big lesson there is like, you don't always have to know the future. I think you have to kind of figure it out as you go. But also the lesson is to like really set your own path, right? And if you feel like you're going down a path that isn't right, you owe it to yourself or to maybe other people have expectations of you to like voice that, right? And to make a change. Um, because if you don't, then you may waste a lot of time. When was your realization that you were passionate about sports marketing? Yeah. So where I worked the longest um, after I graduated was at American Express. I was there about 12 years. And when I started there, I was um, at the, it was really in the dawn of the internet, literally, 1999, 2000. The internet is literally being invented. And I did a bunch of different roles there. Um, I did stuff in like what was back then called interactive marketing. So this is kind of what we consider like digital today. Um, I did stuff in more traditional uh, product sales. One of my last jobs there, I had six jobs over 12, 13 years there, but my last job there was working in sports marketing, uh, managing their sponsorships. So I was managing their deals with the NBA, um, with uh, the US Open in tennis, with the USGA and PGA Tour of America in golf. And I'd never really been in that space before. Like I knew the brand really well. I'd done product marketing for quite a bit. I'd done a lot of advertising campaigns, creative development. But Amos is one of these companies that really encourages people to try different things. Um, and so a role opened up in the space and I was interested in it, but I was fully transparent. I've never done this before. And they're okay with that. They said, look, you've, you've shown enough leadership ability and enough passion and understanding of our brand. We think this could be a good opportunity for you. And literally within the first few weeks, I fell in love with it. Um, I knew it was kind of my calling because it kind of married everything that I really enjoyed um, about work, right? It allowed me to still be truly in marketing. And I love the aspect of marketing because um, it allows you to really marry kind of art and science. And I do like both. I'm very kind of left brain, right brain. And um, so I like the balance of both. But then you intersect that with sports, which I had a lot of passion for as a fan. But then when you start working in it, you realize how really, really interesting the industry is. Um, I always tell people, look, like I think you have to be a fan to work in sports, but it, it can't be your only qualification. Right. Like you actually have to love the industry and really get excited by it. And I really did like right away. I really like this idea of the role of sports and culture, the role it plays in people's lives. I like the entire kind of ecosystem of sports and kind of like following things like the money flow between teams and leagues and unions and media networks and sponsors. Like uh, that whole aspect of it was really interesting to me and figuring out how you can play a role in that, depending on which side of the table you sit on. So really it was within that role that I fell in love with it. And I knew right away, like that was my path. You have experience working for agencies and big brands, and and you mentioned it before, like the interest of like the sports industry and the kind of the the workings behind it. How did those industries, um, you know, in in the agency world and and the the brand side of things, like how are they similar to professional sports and how are they different? Yeah, I mean, 
I will say this, like, you know, every part of the sports, sports ecosystem is a little bit different and there's some interlinkages there and there's no better or worse. Um, I think the one thing they all share in common, obviously, is like we're all working towards the same thing, right? Which is really to like continue to keep people engaged in something that they already love, which is professional sports, right? Um, and really trying to feel that passion that people have for it. Now, how we do that is different, right? When you work at an agency, you're really helping support your clients and their role in that space, right? And so in my case, I worked for brand consulting mostly. So I was helping brands like Microsoft and Verizon figure out their strategy as it relates to sports, right? So for Microsoft, it was about their NFL deal, so Surface on the Sidelines, which you guys are very familiar with. Um, for uh, Verizon, it was about NFL as well, um, as well as IndyCar and kind of what they do. And you're trying to really help them figure out, okay, your brand sort of as a, you're not a sports endemic, right? You're a technology company or a wireless company but you wanna have a role in this sport or in this league. And so what can that be? What does that look like? And what does it look like for your fans and how does that make sense? Um, when you're sitting on the agency side, you know, you're there to help influence decisions, to help help provide advice and guidance, but you're not making the call. It's your client's call at the end of the day, right? Um, when you're brand side, you are making the call, but you're also always just adjacent to sport, right? Unless you're a sports endemic, unless you're a Nike or a Gatorade, like every other brand essentially is, is sort of adjacent to sport. And so you're constantly struggling to kind of find a place at the table. Like some, you know, and so I think that's where um, having really good agencies and really good brand partners help you because they help you find that place, right? And we do that every day with our partners here, for example. Um, being team side for me has been really rewarding because I think we have the closest relationship to the fan of anyone else in the ecosystem, right? When you think about like, who does the end consumer, in our case, the fan, care about the most? Who do they love the most? When it comes to what we do in sports, it's typically going to be a team, right? Like we are the brand that they're going to be most passionate about. They're going to be happiest about when things go well. They're going to be most upset about if things aren't going well, that they're going to represent on their clothing, on their body with tattoos, on the flag in front of their house, on the bumper sticker on their car. Um, and so to me, I think realizing that we're all part of creating that connection is pretty special and it's powerful and, and, um, and it's a lot of fun. Did working for a brand and on the agency side, did that inform decisions or how you work with partners now? Absolutely. I think I have enough experience to have seen all different types of relationships in our business. And the reality is, is like the sports industry is a really small industry. It's very relationship driven. And I truly believe that like how you treat people matters, right? And I think it's not just about doing something for someone because they're doing something for you later. It's also about just doing the right thing for people, right? And I think our industry by and large does that. And it's something I think I've personally benefited from and I've tried to do that for people that I interact with as well. Um, but when you're kind of sitting on different sides of the table, you see different types of things, right? When I was agency side, there were times where, yeah, we had difficult clients who like didn't treat their agency partners, including us very well. They looked at us like um, sort of the faceless, anonymous commodity, right? We're just an army of agency people who can do things that we ask you to do. And so um, there isn't a level of respect there that I think should be there, right? I've also been in situations where, you know, you treat agencies like they're an extension of your team, right? In which they are, right? In most cases, brands rely on agencies um, and they rely on um, properties like us that they work with for a reason, right? You need agencies because you need, you need resources and expertise to help you get something done, right? You need partners like teams or leagues or uh, athletes because they give you access to an audience or give you some brand sort of uh, credibility in a space that you don't naturally have, right? And so if you recognize that, that it is a truly 
a symbiotic relationship, then I think that should then be reflected in how you treat people. But it doesn't always, because a lot of times people take it to its simplest kind of common denominator, which is, well, I'm paying you, therefore I can kind of behave this way. But I've always rejected that theory, and, and, and I've, I've tried to kind of take that notion, whether I'm on the buy side or the sell side of the table. What do you think are characteristics of a good marketer? Um, I think you have to be naturally curious. Um, I think when you think about kind of the marketing industry and the dynamics of what drives it, it's changing every day, right? And there's been massive sea change, obviously, because of things like the smartphone, social media, um, influencers, just the internet in general, right? I always tell this story and it ages me, but I'm okay with it. Like, so like I said, I started my career in 99, 2000. Back then, the number one marketing channel for a company like American Express, a massive global brand, the number one marketing channel by far was direct mail. That was how they acquired customers. That was how they drove loyalty and retention. Direct mail was the number one marketing channel. It was the majority of the budget, the majority of the staff, majority of the effort, and the majority of the metrics were driven through a channel that today, by and large, is defunct. Okay, and that was, I say only, because it's a long time ago now, but that was, only, that was less than 25 years ago. Okay, I started my career at that point, right? If I had said, okay, I'm gonna become a super hyper expert in direct mail, and that's gonna be, make me the best marketer I can be for the rest of my life, my career would have been over a long time ago, right? So I think you have to have this natural curiosity to say, okay, well, if the world's changing around me, like, can I learn about that? Can I understand it? Um, and I wanna to continue to learn about it, even if it's areas that I'm less familiar with, right? I think about where we are today, and what you guys are experts in, you guys are digital and social natives, right? Like you guys literally like grew up with this technology, you grew up with these channels, you grew up with the kind of this way of interacting that I personally didn't, right? And so for me, I spent a lot of my time trying to learn it, but I'm learning it a little bit secondhand because I didn't experience it, right? I'm now in, obviously I've adopted it now, but it had a very different phase, right? right? My growth and development. And I have to be comfortable with that, right? Um, so I think curiosity is a really important one. Um, I think the ability to, to collaborate with others is really important as well. Um, no marketer can do it alone, right? Even like the most creative people, creative geniuses, people have the best ideas, ultimately need people around them to help shape the idea, to help bring them to life, to help to improve them. And so it doesn't matter the size of the team. I've worked with marketing teams that are thousands of people. Our team is, you know, 30 some people. It doesn't matter the size of the team. Like you need to be able to work together with others because no one can do it alone. And lines are blurred a lot in marketing, right? I look at you guys, what you're doing right now, for example, like hosting a podcast isn't something that you guys probably thought you'd be doing when you first walked into this building. It wasn't part of your job description, right? But you understood the opportunity. Um, you had the curiosity and interest to try to do that um, and the brave and, and, and were brave enough to try it. And now it's something you guys are really thriving at, right? And that's really important. So I think that's really important. And then I think lastly, you know, to be a successful marketer, I think you have to really have an appreciation um, for the relationship that you have with the consumer, right? And have a lot of respect for the consumer. You can't just look at consumers as a transactional relationship, you know, as a dollar sign. I think you have to think about it as a relationship and that you exist in someone's life and you have to play a role in their life and like to, and take that um, seriously, right? And have, have a lot of respect for it, especially when you work in our space, right? Like we are something that people care deeply about. We mean a lot to them. We're part of people's identity. We're part of their traditions. We're part of what they, their community, what they pass down to, um, you know, their next generation and their families. And so, I think you, if you if you really cherish that relationship and have a lot of respect for it, I think it affects kind of how you think about your job day to day. As a consumer yourself, I would say you have a really impressive shoe game. <laughs> Where did that start? 
I, you know, growing up, so I grew up in North Carolina, in a small town. And when I was growing up, so it was like in the, like the 80s, essentially, we didn't really have a lot of professional sports around me. The one thing we did have was ACC basketball. ACC basketball was massive. And so I grew up a big UNC fan. And so I think seeing people like Michael Jordan and James Worthy and those guys and really following the NBA um, as the people went from college to the NBA is kind of my first love in sports. Exposed me to the sneaker game. So I think that was part of it is just seeing, because that's the dawn of like when Air Jordans came out and like Converse weapons, like sneakers started becoming part of pop culture. I think the second part of it, and this sounds weird, is because I didn't have a lot of sneakers as a kid. And so I think, you know, as, as a kid, I would get, like most people, I'd get like, you know, like one pair of sneakers. And once it was worn out or you grew out of it, you get the second pair of sneakers. Um, I said, I, I wasn't sniffing Jordans at that point. That wasn't an option, you know, for me. Like my parents just didn't think that was a good use of, of money. Um, and so I think I was always kind of, you know, going through like things like East Bay catalogs and like looking at sneakers or watching, you know, NBA games and like admiring sneakers, but never having them. And once I was lucky enough to start to be able to have some disposable income to spend on it, I just felt like that was an area that it made me happy and it still does. Um, at some point, I know I'm going to be at a point where like, I'm probably too old to run the sneakers that I'm wearing, but I don't think I'm there. I'm not there yet. At least mentally I'm not there yet. So I continue to invest in it. But, um, yeah, thank you for noticing. I think our team in general, honestly, has like pretty good sneaker game. And our company I think in general. you've upped our sneaker game as a marketing department. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I think when you work for a pro sports team and you see all the great stuff like our players are wearing, mm. you naturally feel like, I got to step up my game. It's not going to be the like Balenciaga sneaks or anything, but you know, a nice pair of dunks or Definitely. you know, some J's. Definitely. I can get away with. For sure. For sure. <laughs> I also honestly like the fact, and I think you're seeing this across our industry. And I didn't see this when I first started in sports. I think you're seeing it like, people start to accept that like it's okay to wear sneakers to work, right? It's okay to wear jeans and a hoodie to work. Like you gotta be put together and you wanna make sure it's, you know, it's neat. But like at the end of the day, like we can dress comfortably at work. It's not about suit and ties and being a super formal business attire every day. And when I started in the industry, it wasn't like that. It was suit and tie every day and super formal, even if you were just gonna be sitting in your office all day. Starting your career with suit and tie every day, really formal, but also in New York, which is like notoriously small closets. Mm. How did that work? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you, you, you get efficient, you know, <laughs> with combinations and like base, you start with like base patterns first, base colors, ties, shirts, socks, shoes, like just get all the basics first and you kind of build from there. Um, but yeah, like it's not great. Like, you know, you think about like a hot, humid New York summer and packing onto a subway like a sardine. And literally what you have to do, and a lot of people do this, you have a change of clothes at work. And so you literally have like an extra shirt, a suit, a tie, like you change at work because there's no point in getting changed before because you're going to be a mess. And winter's the same thing, you know. Um, in any big city where you, you're out commuting, like literally in the streets a lot, you wear the weather, right? So if it's wet out, you're going to be wet. If it's cold, you're going to be cold. If it's hot, you're going to be hot. And so you have to adapt to it. I think we're much luckier here in the Bay Area. It's pretty much awesome weather all the time. Um, so we're not really exposed to the elements that much. And so, um, you know, we can kind of wear what we want to wear. You've received a number of accolades from Adweek, Gold House, SBJ, to name a few. Is there any that meant the most to you or like really sunk in that you'd made it? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I've made it. I don't know if, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if, I'm, if you've ever achieved that, but... Um, I was really honored with the Gold House Awards. So people may be familiar with it. And so Gold House is an organization um, that uh, focuses on Asian Americans. And they have a Gold House A100 Award, which each year honors the 100 most influential Asian Americans. Um, and so I was lucky enough to be named that list. Uh, I think it was year before last. And there's some 
really impressive names, way more impressive than main names on that list. And so to be considered kind of in that company, I think was an honor for me. I think also honestly representing the Asian American community in our industry has always been an honor for me. There aren't a lot of us, and that's just the reality of it. This is a non-traditional space for Asian Americans to be in. Marketing in general, but especially sports marketing specifically, like pretty unusual um, to see Asian Americans in this space. Um, and so for me, I think to be able to hopefully be a, a leader and a role model um, for my community in this space and then to be recognized for like an, for an organization like that was a pretty big honor. Yeah, I mean, the theme of Apex this past year was breaking the bamboo ceiling, which is like a term a lot of us in the community are familiar with. Um, as one of a handful of Asian American C-level executives across the NFL, like how did you kind of break through that ceiling and what advice do you have to anyone who's trying to also advance their career? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is recognizing that it's there, but at the same time ignoring it. I know that sounds weird, right? Because I think the reality is, is like we all recognize the dynamics that are at play in our society, both from a societal standpoint, kind of in the personal life as well as in your professional life. We know, and we know the challenges and barriers that exist. And so you cannot pretend those aren't there. I think pretending they're not there isn't a realistic kind of scenario to be in. So um, but once you realize they're there, then you have to like really work your butt off to combat it, right? And to somewhat say like that, that isn't something that's going to hold me back. Like I'm going to succeed in spite of that. Almost use it as a challenge in some ways, a little bit of a chip on the shoulder if you have to and power through it. Now that's uncomfortable at times, right? Because you know that it's a challenge. You know that it's unique. It's different. People aren't expecting that necessarily. Um, but for me, I've always kind of worn that as a badge of honor frankly, and I've took it as, on as a challenge. And I really like, honestly, like thought about it to say like, I want to set an example for other people too, right? Because I think that's what I think inspires people to say like, if I see other people around me who are doing this and like, it gives me the feeling that I can do that as well. And so that's always been something that's really important to me. You also serve as exec sponsor of our Latino Employee Resource Group lead. As someone who's not in that community, why was it important for you to get involved? I think it's important. I think, you know, so we have several ERGs here, which I'm really proud of for a lot of different communities. Um, and frankly, for the our Latinx ERG, we didn't have someone at a senior level who was part of that community, right? And obviously that right away says, like, that's a gap that we obviously need to address and fill. Despite that, I think what they ultimately needed was not just someone from their community, but also someone understood the needs of an ERG, right? And like why they, why they exist, where they need support, what kind of advice and guidance do they need and what kind of advocacy do they need? And that's something that I wanted to provide regardless of whether I was a part of their community or not. As a husband, father, CMO, ERG exec sponsor, how do you find any sort of like work-life balance? <laughs> um, I'm tired a lot. You know, I always tell people this, and it's true. I think I have three kids now. My oldest is, I have 14, uh, 11, and eight, two boys and a little girl. And I would say that my energy level since I've had my first kid has never been as high as it was before. Like, it's my max, you know, like fuel in the tank is on like 80% as so high as I can go. So I'm always a little bit tired, but I'm okay. I can function with that. Um, I think it's about making concerted effort to make sure there is balance in your life and, and putting yourself in situations where you can have that balance, meaning, if, we were, if I was in a role where it required me to work 100 hours a week around 24-7, 365, that would not allow me to have balance on other parts of my life. That isn't a role that I would do, right? Like I want to be in a situation where from a professional standpoint, 
I have the ability to have balance in their personal life. And in my personal life, I make sure I don't overcommit to where it can, it's, it can impact my professional life either. I make sure there's balance on both sides. So I think that's part of it. Having an incredible partner and a support system in place is a big part of it as well. So my wife, Manica, is amazing and she helps a lot. And I help her as well. I support her professional career as well. She's really busy as well. And so we try to support each other wherever we can to make sure um, that we're able to do what we need to do at home and in the workplace. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. I think having kids who appreciate what I do helps. My kids love sports. Um, they love this organization. They love coming to the stadium. And you guys have seen them a ton of times. And they like being here. And that helps a lot too. You know, when I tell them, hey, I got to get to the stadium like six hours before we kick off. And they're like, great, can we come? Perfect. Like that works for me. So, um, and being in a place where a workplace where that's okay. Like that's not an odd thing to have, you know, your family here six hours before a game, like people are, are cool with it. So I think being in the right situations and, and knowing that, that that's a priority um, and making it that way. But I will tell you this, look, early on in my career, like it was less of a priority. Like early on in my career, I was talking about getting experience. It was about the grind. It was about, you know, being able to pay my rent or about being able to get that next promotion. And that was the priority and work life wasn't really the priority because it didn't need to be. And that's okay too. I think at every stage in your career, your priorities can change and you have to just recognize what they are at that point and then adjust your situation so you can best match those. You mentioned six hours before a game. What does your game day routine look like? I feel like I just kind of see you in places all around the stadium. It's a lot of running around and just like checking on people, you know, and making sure everyone's good and like people are set. The reality is someone asked me this before too. It's like at the end of the day, like everything that we've done in the preparation, the planning that's gone on, that's the work. But by the time we get to game day, it's execution time and you guys are out there doing your thing. Everyone is going at that point. Right at that point, if there's anything for me to actually do, then something must have gone horribly wrong because at that point, like it should be like, okay, now we're just go, you know. So I think there's a lot of that, just checking in, make sure everyone's good, does anyone need anything? Um, there's the kind of B two B side of it too, to make sure for hosting clients and whatnot. That I'm doing that as well, um, checking on our ownership groups and our exec team, make sure those folks are good. And a lot of it, even now in my fifth season, a lot of it's still observing and learning too, right, and understanding that. I made a really uh, concerted effort, especially my first few seasons. Um, less the COVID year, we didn't have fans here, but to really understand the fan experience and kind of what they're, because, you know, a big part of our, obviously, delivery on game day is the game day experience itself for the folks who are here in the building. Um, so I spent a lot of time trying to understand that and kind of see what does that look and feel like to them. I watch the fans a lot, see how they're responding. I watch and see where they are. Say, like, okay, like, you know, where we're at kickoff, are people still out in the concourse? Or are they in their seats now, like, and, and fired up, you know? Um, when we're doing certain forms of entertainment, are they engaged with it? Or are they just, or are they kind of often doing their own thing? So a lot of is that is sort of observation as well. But um, I try to typically by, you know, third quarter, maybe start of the fourth, try to settle down at that point and and you know get with my kids, get with my family, and like try to spend time with them, um, and hopefully kind of see us close out a game. What's been your favorite memory since joining the team? Um, I have a few. So I think my first day was a really important memory for me. I literally got goosebumps kind of just driving up to the building for the first time as a, as an employee, I come for interviews and stuff, but as an employee, um, I remember getting my badge, you know, and just feeling really proud, um, to have that. And so that was one. Um, I think, um, that same season being on the field when we won the NFC Championship game with the confetti falling and Journey playing was definitely a big memory for me. And just, I, I was overwhelmed with emotion. Just, it just, it just so joyous. And I've, and I've never, and I've had a lot of amazing experiences in my career, but I've never felt that much just pure joy 
you know, in a work, quote unquote, work context, like ever. Like I've just never felt that high, you know, at a, from a work standpoint. And so that was pretty, pretty incredible. Um, I think there was, there was no one moment, but I was honestly really proud of the way our team kind of handled 2020 all up. Um, it was a challenging year uh, for everybody for a multitude of reasons. And um, I think the way that our team ultimately pulled together as a team and I think really opened up to each other as a team and I think, you know, um, became much closer, even though we were physically apart for, you know, a good part of that year. Um, I was really proud of that as well. Um, there's just so many cool moments, honestly, and I think that's something that I've always appreciated is that this role has enabled me and you guys and everybody just to like experience some like really incredible moments. And it's not just about what's happening on the field. Certainly that's part of it and winning has been great and we've had a really, really awesome you know, run in, the, in the, at least the five years I've been here and hopefully that continues on. It's not just about that though. I think it's, it's, it's really about kind of the moments that we share together and the fun that we can have and like the, the fact that we're lucky to be a part of this organization. Hopefully more fun memories to come very soon. We're heading into our first home playoff game. What are you excited for? Um, I'm excited for the energy in the building, um, that buzz that only playoff football can bring with the fans, you know, once the red end zones get painted red and the fans show up and we know it's like, you know, that first step towards the ultimate goal. Um, it's really exciting, you know, and it's hard, it's hard to describe that. And also just, again, I still have it now. Like I get that pride of knowing that like we're part of bringing something to people that they care so much about, right? That's all, every marketer's ultimate goal, I think, is to have a genuine connection with a consumer. And we have that in spades. Um, and I don't take that for granted. What advice do you have to anyone who wants to break into the sports industry? I would say, you know, start wherever you can. Like there's so many entry points in sports and your first job in sports won't be your last job in sports, right? And so don't feel like I've got to find like the exact perfect starting point. Like just get started. Because once you get started, you'll start to find other opportunities open up. The world will change around you. You'll make more, you'll develop more relationships. You'll start to have different avenues um, come in front of you. And so, and then you can figure out what the next path is, right? I've, I've used the analogy a lot. So I know you guys have heard this before, but I think about careers kind of like those old school choose your own adventure books where there isn't one set path, right? Everyone's adventure is going to be different. So as you get to each decision point, each fork in the road, you have to decide what's best for you at that point, right? What do you prioritize at that point in your career? And then you make a decision based off of that. And then a few years on, you may not even know when that point's going to come. You have to make another decision. You have to reassess then. And ultimately, at, through a series of decisions, you'll end up where you end up. But it's very hard at this first point to say, I know exactly how this is getting to the end point, right? You may still end up getting there, but how you get there is going to change. And I think you have to be okay with that and be okay with being flexible and making those decisions as you go because the world's going to change around you. Your priorities are going to change. And all that affects that decision-making. I think if you go into it saying, like, there's only one path and here's how I have to start, and this is 100% going to get me to the end, I know every step along the way, I think it's not realistic and you're probably going to be disappointed. I think you have to be a little bit more nimble. The question we ask on every episode, every job posting has the, like, other duties as assigned. As the CMO here, have you done anything that maybe you weren't expecting to do when you got here? Wow, that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Like, there's nothing crazy. Like, hey, I had to do this like really like odd thing, you know? Because honestly, for me, again, even working in like big brands, working agencies, you kind of have to do it all, you know? I've always said this, and I think this exists in most facets of sports. Generally, most sports marketing teams aren't that big, 
Okay, and that really worked for a team, you work for a brand or for an agency. Like, it's usually a pretty small, nimble team. So I think to be successful in this type of role, no matter what your title is, I think you have to have two things. I think one, you have to have the ability to range up. So the ability to hold yourself in a room, in a conversation with people who might be a quote unquote above you in terms of like level of seniority experience. So have that ability to range up and be comfortable in that environment, no matter what, but also the humbleness and the willingness to range quote unquote down, meaning like do whatever it takes. Like if you have to end up being someone who's helping clean up a room, pick up garbage, like then just do that. You know, if you have to, you know, I remember when we launched the member inclusive member program, right? For the concessions, we had to work concession lines, right? And help direct people. There was a guy once, maybe this is the example now, when we first launched that, it was for a preseason game. I remember it was for a preseason game against Kansas City. It was our first beta launch of this program. I was walking through the concourse, like I normally do, just checking things out. A guy comes up to me and he's trying to find chicken fingers and he can't find them at the concession stand right in front of them. And they didn't have them. They genuinely didn't have them. So I spent the next 15 minutes walking the concourse with him, finding him chicken fingers. And that's okay. Like that's part of the delivery of like, I'm here representing the brand, right? It doesn't matter the title um, or my day-to-day quote-unquote role. Like that's, he's looking for assistance. I'm here. I can assist. So I help. It's funny. We had uh, Jeff Fong on and he was saying that he's memorized the map because he likes walking around on a game day and directing people. Okay. That's now his thing. That is. Yeah. yeah. He, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was going to bring that up that Jeff was like, I like my game day is I like to go on the concourse and help people. And I was like, I love that. I think he should, I mean, he could probably just moonlight then, you know, right. As a brand ambassador and get paid for it. I mean, I do think, you know, because, you know, we all wear, we all wear business, uh, you know, suits on game day or whatnot. Like we're kind of like dead ringers for someone who can help. Yeah. Right. Between that and the credential, it's like, we're basically a beacon for whatever question you have, I can answer. And I try to answer as many as I can, but I also know that like, if I need to phone a friend, I will. So there's a question I really don't know. If someone asks a question about how to get to someplace I really don't know, I know very quickly to like look for someone, like a playmaker and grab them and have them answer the question. That's so good. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.